I'm Sarah Greenman, and this is Collaborative Alchemy. My guest today is Dom Magwilly, an award-winning actor, director, and producer. They're also a teaching artist for one of the most respected and preeminent Asian-American theaters in the country, East-West Players, and they've been with the company on and off since 1974. This is what theater can, can do for a community. It can give them behavior and language that they'd have never had before. Yeah. Conceptually, they see uh, this idea of uh, a reflection of themselves that never occurred to them. And when you get a sense of yourself like that, you have the audacity to think that you're an equal person. Dom Magwilly received their early theater training from the American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco and have appeared in movies and guest starred on TV shows such as Close to Home, How to Make It in America, and ER. He's also received critical acclaim for his stage performances with East West Players, South Coast Repertory Theater Company, and Center Theater Group in Los Angeles. Dom is a screenwriter and movie director, and among his many plays for the stage is his musical, A Jive Bomber's Christmas, which had a 10-year run at the Japanese American National Museum. Dom received his Master of Fine Arts in Acting at Cal State Long Beach, where he initiated their first Asian American theater class. He's currently teaching Asian American film and video, as well as preserving community through performance at Cal State Fullerton. His first published novel, Legends from the First Hemisphere, The Infernal Promise, is now available on Amazon. Let's dive right in with Dom Magwilly. Dom, thank you so much for spending an hour with me today. I'm so excited to talk to you. I am honored. Thank you very much. Yeah. So uh, you are a creative in all sorts of ways. Um, When I look at your body of work from your website, you are a multifaceted artist. So I'm so curious to know what are some of the very first um, creative awakenings or creative endeavors that let you know, yes, this is my path. That kind of self-awareness probably came later. Mm -hmm. I can tell you that uh, uh, some of the first moments of creativity, um, were encouraged like from second grade they had us come in shift there were there were eight o'clockers and nine o'clockers i was a nine o'clocker but my teacher mrs betancourt invited me to come in at eight and i would come in at eight and i would essentially write a book little a five-page book out here and with drawings when i think about that now that was such a gift and then i remember and i don't know where this where this fits chronologically uh, the Oakland Tribune had a page for kids. And if you wrote something and you turned it in, you had a shot of getting it printed. Ooh. And I, I sent in something called Bats Are Flying High. I think I was inspired by the Body Snatchers. <laughs> um, I saw the movie and, you know, I said, yeah, okay, Body Snatchers. And then I wrote, so I, I, I wrote this what I consider a tribute to the body snatchers. So I was in process early on of identifying myself as, as a writer. I was writing because it made my friends laugh. I wrote fun. I wrote funny stories. Like at my high school, I went to St. Joseph's high school in Alameda. Yeah. And I wrote a satirical, like a day in the life of a guy in St. Joseph's. Well, two things come to mind as I'm listening to you. You, ha- you mentioned this idea that you did it to make your friends laugh, which to me is about connection, right? Yes. Like creating yes. relationship. And then this other thing you bring up, which is like the power of story that t- talk to me a little bit more about 
how it created connection for you and why, why story matters. Well, the connection is I'd write something and I show it to my friends, they'd laugh and connection. Yeah. You know, it is like, it is like the, 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 the class clown tells a joke and the class laughs connection. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't, I, I wasn't a class clown. I was really very uh, formal. I got involved with speech and debate and like that. Yeah. So that made me kind of like, I was very straight. But when I wrote to the guys who weren't so straight and, you know, by that, I mean, formal. Yes. They, uh, they laughed too. And so I was like, suddenly I was um, included in, in, in the, in the, in the group. Yeah. And that the teachers would laugh also. I was, that was very cool for me, Hmm. but I stopped writing when I got into college. I got into college. I got into uh, a speech and debate. I went to the university of San Francisco and the drama department was right next door (laughs) to the, the, the debate club. So I just went over there and said, I'll do anything. What do you need me to do? And soon after that, I got, uh, there is a stage play called Rashomon, which later became a movie, Kurosawa's movie. And this, the samurai and his wife, they meet on the road, the bandit intending to rob the two people. And the samurai is killed. The wife reportedly is raped Mm. and the, 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 the bandit goes on, but it is viewed by three people who witnessed this event and they all have a different impression of what went on. So Rashomon is about perspective and interpretation. Hmm. How uh, what seems to be pretty straight ahead uh, is different. In in one version, the samurai uh, got himself killed. In another version, the wife was not raped. She uh, she seduced. In, in another one, the, the the bandit saw himself as the hero. I got the role of the bandit, and so from my junior year into my senior year, my 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 theatrical career went from the chorus to leads, but it got me into ACT, the American Conservatory Theater. Yes. I got into the training program for two and a half years, but that significantly moved my life around. Yeah, I can Uh, imagine. But I wasn't writing during that period Mm -hmm. of time. And I remember distinctly, it was in my second year at ACT, I I got a legal pad and started writing again. And that was interesting because I hadn't done it in a while. I, I think I was too busy living life to be writing. And what happened when you wrote? I mean, what kinds of um, stories were um, being birthed forth? I was writing comic books. I, I used to have, I don't have it now, but I used to have the first Fantastic Four, the first Spider-Man, the first Thor, the first Ant-Man. I had all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, I have since sold it to pay rent. But I think you could understand that. I do. I do. Yes. Artists working in multi-dimensional spaces. We need to make uh, it. <laughs> it. Give it. Well, I mean, what are you going to do? And what are you going to do? Exactly. Yeah, rent. So uh, I gave that all up. Mm. But it was a tremendous influence on me. my, my notions of, of uh, not just good and bad, but also structure. Tell me and, more about and, that structure. Um, the setup, the resolution yeah. and the style of it. I remember I was in eighth grade arguing the value of, of Captain America against the Red Skull to the nun. Because <laughs> it was so wonderful, sister, you don't understand. Um, so, um, oh, nerds unite. I love it. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, Getting into theater, I started thinking of uh, 
things to write about. And my, my inclinations tended to be funny and adventuresome. I understood sort of like children's theater fable. Yeah. Cause I was doing it. Got, I, I received a, uh, well, I won a Rockefeller playwrights in residence grant. It was over a play entitled nobody on my side of the family looks like that. Mm. And, and it was, and this is, it preceded young Frankenstein, but it had the elements of young Frankenstein in it. Oh, interesting. It had, it had a monster whose parts were, were, were pulled out of the grave of the Hollywood cemetery with the brain of the Filipino gardener. And, and um, because I was working out of the East West Players Theater, which is an Asian American theater company. Yes. Um, I was heavily influenced by that so that the characters were Asian American by and large. I learned many lessons. Uh, you have never been roasted in LA till you've been roasted by the LA Times. <laughs> it's like a marker of really arriving. Yeah, I think. yeah, wow. yeah. And there you are. It's a how lucky for you. Um, <laughs> I learned that particularly for humor, they can be as divergent as, as, as can be. Two people can sit and see the same joke and one person doesn't get it. The other person thinks, I, I like it. I, I want to stay in here more. Yeah, I saw back that. to your multiple perspectives, right? With this like yeah. bandit story that you did. I, I see you as being yeah. very interested in like interpretation. You well, bring up something was, here too. Um, yes. I'm wondering about, um, you're talking now about identity and how identity is showing up in your stories and, and creating yeah. representation for um, characters who look like you and your family that just didn't exist before. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, East West Players was a theater company founded by Asian American actors. Mm -hmm. Their thinking was if the powers that be could see us doing really good work, that they'll give us better roles. Mm -hmm. They'll hire us. It was largely a, a, a uh, an employment opportunity. Sure. I, I don't I don't think, and maybe I'm very cynical about this. I don't think they were thinking, oh, we will we will create great Asian American literature. I don't think they thought like that. I thought they were thinking about, man, if I could get myself a TV series, be a regular, get seven thousand a week, man, that would be so cool. However, once they started writing for themselves, putting themselves in the forefront and as the leads. I think their aspirations elevated. Yeah. I think, I think uh, this is, this is significant. This is, it has power. It has power. I yeah. uh, see. I, I, the artist, I don't think catches that until they see the audience. My sense was there was a dynamic going on that was not just entertainment. Yeah. My sense was there was, cause I was seeing people that were old enough to be my grandparents there. I was seeing kids. Yeah. There. I was seeing families there. Mm -hmm. And the vibe I was getting was a kind of something that they probably don't get daily, certainly not in the media, which is a reflection of themselves. Right. They don't hear themselves. They don't see themselves. They don't, well, they're not there. They are non-people, mm. which if you've been brought up in it, you just accept that that's sort of the way it is until you get it. And then amazing things happen. I think it's yeah. very reflective of during the 60s, civil rights movement, Viva La Raza, Yellow Brotherhood, those elements, yeah. when marginalized people suddenly get the spot. No, they don't get the spotlight. They put the spotlight on themselves. Yeah, they make space for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. They, they force it. Yeah. And they say, and take a look. Yes. But the space that they make for those who come after, then they see stories about their livelihoods. They see yeah. stories about their aspirations. They see stories about their fantasies. Yeah. 
And this is what theater can, can do for a community. It can give them behavior and language that they'd have never had before. Yeah. Conceptually, they see uh, this idea of uh, a reflection of themselves that never occurred to them. And when you get a sense of yourself like that, you have the audacity to think that you're an equal person, that you are a peer. There's all kinds of trouble when people start talking about being peers. This is 2022. There are different dynamics now involved. Sure. But uh, I, I said this recently that teachers, particularly when, like in college, teachers who teach Asian American studies, you are inventing the wheel every day because your audience are a bunch of kids who are eager to learn, but they only know what they know. Uh, uh, to quote uh, Stephen Sondheim, you Wheeler from Pacific Overtures, the bird from the sea, not knowing pine from bamboo will roost on anything. So what do we give them? What do we give these kids? And if you're in Asian American studies, you try to give them, this is probably what you won't hear in general media. You won't hear about your history. You won't hear about uh, what you're into. You won't see reflections of yourself. For these kids, it is revolutionary. What you want when you're a teacher or when you're a parent is you want your kids to look into a mirror and not feel regret. For, for people of color where um, self-hatred can go deep, uh, this is a disadvantage. That's not true. And in this, but, you just yeah. pointed at your own face just for my listeners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. Uh, but I have to say it out loud. Yeah. See, I, I believe in the, I see sticks and stones is not true. It actually hurts people. Uh, words mean something. So I say it out loud so the kids can hear it. Yeah. Like this is of, of tremendous value. Your face, where you're from, you come from noble people, uh, a lineage that is historic, is heroic. But I, I make a point of it because I, I, to me, it is important that they hear it so they can consider it. Absolutely. I have no idea where they're, go where they're going to take that, but uh, it, is, it is a deliberate thing. Well, in the words you're using, that there is a history and it's noble and it's historic and there is a lineage, like a birthright lineage, I think is um, it beautifully aligns with your chosen genre, which sounds like to me is is sort of sci-fi and these sort of epic mm -hmm. um, comic book sort of sco huge scope stories about good and bad and identity and gifts showing up with your like birthright gifts in the world mm -hmm. talk to me about how that hooks up for you that the, the genre supports your mission to do work where representation matters well the genre works for me because i enjoy it the exam best example of it is the version of the three musketeers starring michael york richard chamberlain oliver reed guy the guy who played porthos Oh, yeah. Um, shoot, I'm not going to uh, remember his name. But it is gloriously uh, swashbuckling. It's very funny, but there are these strains of, of seriousness, of drama that I enjoy. I enjoy that. From what I'm able to gather from my community of, of Filipinos, there is a quality of swashbucklingness. There is a quality of the grand gesture. There is... Uh, just as there is a, a real depth in terms of despair and cynicism. So The Three Musketeers is really attractive to me. That is the, the lens upon which I want to tell my story. We'll be right back with my guest, Dom Magwili. 
Collaborative Alchemy is a community-supported podcast made possible with monthly micro-donations through Patreon. If you like what you hear, please join us at www.patreon.com backslash Sarah Greenman. Today I'm talking with actor, producer, screenwriter, and now novelist, Dom Magwily. Let's jump right back into the conversation. You have this quote that you've put that I love. It's a Maya Angelou quote that you have on your website that I also have posted to my board here in my studio, which is that there's no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside you. Ah, Uh, And I want to know, I mean, I love that quote, but I want to know why you're leading with that in your sort of public facing work. uh, To impress upon the reader, I am way motivated about the things I want to say about the people I want to talk about specifically. Yeah. Um, I've been doing Asian American theater for a very long time. I've been doing it since before. Uh, Fresh Off the Boat was a TV series. I am used to not a lot of people coming to see theater in my little theater company. Um, I have performed for like a row of people or, uh, you know, like you, you put up your, we're going to be performing tonight and nobody shows up. I have been in that, that arena to tell our story. So I'm used to being ignored or passed over or um, just nobody's interested or nobody's buying. And there's not a lot of logic to this. I, but even so, I still feel compelled to write or perform or act. There is um, a movie, a documentary called uh, uh, Forbidden City USA. Back in the 40s, there was a nightclub called Forbidden City. They, they touted an all Chinese American review. All the performers had Chinese names and they had a Chinese Frank Sinatra, Chinese Sophie Tucker, like that. And and they had dancing girls. But the documentary focused in on these performers. You are the only Asian family in this town up in Washington state. And you dance ballet and you want to continue dancing ballet. Where are you going to go? Right. Or, Or this kid whose dad is a pharmacist, but he just saw Fred Astaire and he wants to be Fred Astaire. Where do you guys, where do you go? We are at this point in time seeing a lot of activity. Asian American violence has always been around. We certainly knew about it in the community. Yep. But recently, it seems that other people besides ourselves are interested too. Mm-hmm. That's the big difference in yeah. 2022 is like, you mean we're not alone in this? Really? Somebody else cares? That's great. They passed a law. That, that's wonderful. But we never liked it. It, it, there's this uh, terrible, horrible, and amazing thing where some woman gets pushed in front of a subway car because she's an Asian woman, and, and yet uh, Minari, this Asian-American movie, is nominated for Best Film by mm-hmm. the, in the Academy Awards. Like, it's, it's, it's insane. Yeah. It's crazy insane. Uh, and, and I don't have answers for that. I just observe sure. this. It's also the backdrop from which you are now writing and you've just published this epic fantasy novel, The Infernal Promise. Is there a connection with you sort of stepping forward with this long form uh, Asian American centered epic in this moment, in this time? 
I don't think so. I think I just came into fashion. In, in 2003, I've been writing it. My book is like 626 pages. Yeah. The rewrite turnaround for that is not fast. No, of course. And yeah. then if you're, if you're teaching full time. So this story has been living inside of you for well over two, maybe three decades. Maybe, yeah. And, and if we're just talking about the writing part of it, it is sublime to hold. I see, I'm, I'm old fashioned. I, I, I enjoy books. I like holding books. To paper, hand, the smell. <laughs> paper, the, 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 the volume, the depth. Yes, me too. Um, but now I, I sort of have put that away. And now we are in the business of knocking on doors, all, all the joys and pitfalls of the marketplace. I very much appreciate the realities of, of the marketplace. We're mm-hmm. coming in with our humble offerings. Tell me a little bit about the story. This is from a series, right? Uh, Legends from the First Hemisphere is the series. Yes. And you yes. just finished book one. You are yes. currently producing or publishing um, book two, it sounds like. But talk to us about this first installation, The Infernal Promise. Give us like a little brief like synopsis. Um, it takes place in 1864. Uh, a wagon train is making its way to San Francisco from, from St. Louis. And it's got all kinds of, it's, it's filled with immigrants, uh, uh, Germans, Italians, uh, Irish folk, Asian people, they're all going. But in the course of the travels, things happen. A couple of families and their herd of cattle decide to stay in one place. We'll just settle here. Yeah. Another family contracts malaria and they're in quarantine. Uh, another family just disappears in a sandstorm. So that the wagon train has dwindled. What populates the wagon train at this point are two Chinese brothers who own the wagon train, uh-huh. two Japanese brothers who are uh, like working on it, uh, a Filipino gambler from New Orleans, three female assassins posing as nuns, oh, wow. a defrocked priest, his manservant, and two very, very old Chinese miners. At one point, that because they're being chased by bandits, they seek uh, refuge and safety into this cavern. But the cavern turns into a tunnel. The tunnel leads them into a world where mm. there are two suns and five moons, and they are in an adventure. I love a portal. <laughs> well, I, I mean, it could have been a, a wardrobe closet, but I thought that was already done. So you know, I, we've already got our wardrobe closet. I love a portal. Yes. It's so beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Transportation, transformation. Yeah. So as you are um, sharing this work, how is the community receiving it? Like how, how has the reception been? Uh, I had a book launch event at the Echo Park Library mm. in Los Angeles. It had about 50 people. That's really good for a book launch, by the way. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, (laughs) And it was made up largely of people that I've known over the Mm. years. I've been getting a lot of support. Good. But in many ways, it's like I've exhausted my family and friends. I've got to start talking to strangers. <laughs> Hence, like I'm me. talking to you. <laughs> this is so good. It's so good. Yeah, I know. I think that there's this, there's writing it, there's making the story, there's knowing why we're writing and why we are in a creative pursuit. But then the sort of transition of sharing it, sharing it becomes its own kind of process. And it also requires that we 
believe deeply in the value of what we've made. And so that's a, that's a trick for a lot of creatives to just reinvent, not only do all the work to get it pulled together, but then to reinvest in the sharing of it in a really different way. It takes a different part of the brain to share it and be public and to um, reach out and connect with strangers than it does to like sort of quietly in the recesses of your heart, create, you know, your perfect manuscript. So I appreciate you speaking to this. Oh, <laughs> uh, no, it, uh, the marketplace is not always kind. No, it's and, rarely and, kind. And, How do you uh, manage um, you, teaching? I mean, you teach students, you're an acting yes. teacher, you do some voiceover work as well. When you've got young people, young artists, young creatives that are um, coming to you and, and part of your class, how do you manage the balance of teaching them the craft and the skill and holding space for their own creative genius and also be real about the ways in which they may or may not be able to share their work? This is a element of time. Uh, learning their skill and craft takes time. I, I teach in six week increments. Mm -hmm. uh, the third session is a 10 week session with the end of a production. Mm -hmm. But, and I think you and Jack can certainly attest to this. You don't learn your craft in six weeks. No, you don't. You know, no, I, I mean, you, you may get a, a, a sense of direction from it. And, and, you know, you might be able to uh, be invigorated by something you see, but th that's not skill development. You have to keep doing it all the time. And, and so uh, if they want to be really good at it, they've got to keep doing it. And that's that unfortunately, is not something the teacher can give them. They can give them the opportunity, but they can't give them the engine to do it. Right. I, I have a very hard line notion about this in regards to acting students in particular. And what they is have it? to be their own. It, well, it's a hard. It, it's, they have to be their own engine. Yeah. I was teaching um, at Cal State Long Beach where I got my MFA. And I remember getting up in front of uh, the theater department. And there, so there's undergraduates there. Yeah. And so I said something to the effect of, if you can't get up for an eight o'clock in the morning class, what makes you think you'll get up for a 6 a.m. call? Mm -hmm. uh, it just doesn't, uh, not because they're paying you money. Is that it? Right. Uh, does, all the does, teachers does discipline understand. only show up when there's a remuneration happening? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, <laughs> no. You, you have to be disciplined walking. Yeah. You, all that has to happen without... Uh, uh, somebody telling you you ought to do it right because once we go away what are you left with I think I cover most of what you're saying but I do it in time yeah uh, yes we can study skills but we've got to hang together for a couple of years yeah. yes I can tell you the realities of performance and and trying to get work but you've got to go out and audition I mean I can talk to you about it but you've got to, uh, you've got to shake hands with with the business and, and don't take my word for it. Find out for yourself. Yeah. I remember really clearly an acting teacher saying, listen, Sarah, it's going to be your ass in the light. <laughs> so you have to get your ass there and then find that light. <laughs> and so it's a. Uh, no, no. And, and, but that's it. I mean, uh, act, acting teachers can share their love of the craft. Yeah. But that's just the sharing. If students are looking for some inspiration, they better develop it themselves. Speaking got, of discipline, we, I would love to hear yes. about your own writing process. I mean, writing a 600 plus page 
uh, epic sci-fi novel is some serious discipline. What does your writing routine look like? After I did some research on what something like this looks like, uh, writing fantasy, epic yeah. fantasy. Yeah, uh, create, create uh, you're creating a world, draw a map. So I, I made up a map. The discipline of the writing, uh, I get up uh, between 5.30 and 6, go over to a Starbucks, find uh, a table that wasn't being used and pull out my laptop and write. Yeah. I, I, my style, because I, 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 I was writing as a screenwriter, is I use the Sid Fields uh, index card technique that is being uh, refined because I'm looking at this, uh, this book by Blake Snyder called Save the Cat, mm. where he gets into more detail about the use of those index cards. So I had a stack, maybe about six inches high, of what this book was going to look like. Side, side thing, I think about J.K. Rowling when she was, you know, her kids and she's at a coffee shop and she's writing on napkins, her plot lines for the Harry Potter series. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm thinking that she must've had the structures to all, was it eight books, seven books? Yeah, something like that. Because she, she was able to use things that she planted at the beginning of the series that she would pay off at the end. Yeah. That takes, that, that means you had to have the whole the thing map. somehow yeah, mapped out so that, you know, oh, well, then I'll need this. So I'll plant it over here. Yeah, that's where I'm headed. I use a lot of outline when I do my own work. I mean, my book that I'm coming out with right now is definitely something that was mapped out before it was written in terms of its structure and its uh, trajectory. So I really appreciate you bringing that up, the mapping as being really important yeah. for this kind of work. Uh, and so that was it. That's the regimen. Get yeah. up write for a period of time, go home and do whatever work you have to do next. So you can come uh, back the next morning and write some more. <laughs> or, you know, or you're just staring at the, at the screen and um, what is it? Samuel, uh, Sam Goldwyn would go to the writer's building and listen to see if anybody was typing. That's how he understood if the writers were working. Where writers can look out the window and they'll be doing their work, but nobody can see them. It's all happening in here. Yeah, you're you're like your you're trying to puzzle out some kind of quality, some kind of value. A character isn't quite working out, and you're staring into space, a working something that nobody sees. I call and it creative them, think, puttering. Like that's where it lands for me. I call it creative puttering. Yeah, I'll come into my studio, and I know I'm going to sit down and write, but I'm just I'm not there yet. It hasn't all like formulated in yeah. the brain, in the head. So. Yeah. I'll like clean something or go flit from one thing to another. And it's not like I'm doing anything in particular, but it's a secondary activity that allows my brain to kind of like no. noodle a little bit. Uh -huh. um, uh -huh. I believe in ideas. I believe in the subconscious doing a lot of this stuff for, for me. Yeah, me too. Um, what do you think? your like what special medicine or gift that you bring? What sort of special medicine do you offer the world right now? I know that's kind of a big ah. question, but we all, I believe we all have sort of a, a medicine that we bring and it's a cure for something that's ailing us. What's yours? I, 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 I see the answer in pieces. Uh, I, I believe I offer a perspective that is not largely known. So there's perspective. Yep. Uh, my, my style can be funny so there's a, a, a 
quality of humor. There is sentimentality. Oh, there, there is in, in the, that big novel, somebody asked me, so is this appropriate for young people? And, and the answer is yes. I don't, I don't get in, I don't even allude to anything gra uh, graphic. It's not that style. You know, yeah. It's like largely like a comic book than it is uh, Fatal Attraction. So it's not, okay. you know, it's not like that. Yeah. But uh, uh, there is heartbreak, uh, uh, unrequited love. What was surprising, and, and, and you know, sometimes you'll have an empty space, and then as you write, it's like the magic of your imagination. You fill it with, oh, God, I did not know I was going to say that. Hmm. A certain, and because I, I'm an acting teacher, I believe in behavior. Yeah. People, acting is more than just text. It is behavior. It's what you do. Well, what are these people doing? And I found a behavior that was like, oh, he really does love her. He's really hmm. doing something that shows that he cares about her. And that was, if I can get it right, those insights uh, reinforce the notions of you know, the things that I like, uh, quality of humanity, friendship, courage. Yeah. There is a comic book. The writer is Frank Miller, who I put a lot of stock in as a comic book writer. I think he is uh, uh, critical to the change, particularly in the Batman series. He wrote a, a series about what if RoboCop had to face off with the Terminator. The sequence, and it's early in the, in the, in the it's like a four book series, there is a sequence where an agent from the future is trying to get to RoboCop because actually RoboCop is the reason the Terminator exists. But she encounters RoboCop and, and he says, why are you doing this? And she explains what's happening in the future. And, and he gets it. And he, he leans forward and tells her to shoot him in the head because that will take everything out. And the, the comment that Frank Miller makes is that he, she has only seen nobility in a human being maybe once before in her world. She'd never seen it before. And that struck me. Hmm. The, the behavior of it and, and the, the observation of it, wow. Like if you're an agent from the future coming back, you know, and you're not trying to find RoboCop. Well, you're trying to find us. What's your message, Dom? <laughs> Be kinder to yourselves. Oh, that's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> By golly. Jeez. What do you have to do? Jeez. Um, uh, it seems so, so clear. Be kinder. I don't know what I Be kinder. That's, Be kinder. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was just reading um this really beautiful uh, poem and blessing by John O'Donohue and it's called for one who is exhausted and at the end he talks about being excessively gentle with ourselves and so that comes to mind as you say be kinder to everyone else but to also ourselves well if you I don't know if you heard it but I had a great sigh about that yeah. because physician heal thyself um, I can say this yeah. uh, practicing it is its own challenge yeah isn't that the truth God. yes Dom um is there anything that I haven't asked you about that you wanted to make sure we um touched on today um when will you be airing this podcast oh it probably won't be aired until the first of August but that's like next week so pretty quick okay well then um you're in Washington state yes 
I'm actually in Oregon. I'm in Eastern, far Eastern oh, Oregon. Far, excuse me. I didn't mean to make that aspersion. No, that's okay. Uh, I'm in the West. <laughs> I'm in the West and in the Pacific Northwest. Yes. Um, down here in Los Angeles, I am, let me see if I can find that information. Uh, I am doing, it isn't, it's a book event. Oh, great. When? Uh, it is the 6th of August at a, uh, Charlie's Coffee House in South Pasadena. I'll give you the. Oh, please send me the information and I'll make sure that that gets out to the community that's listening to this podcast. Well, sure. Hell's Bells. I thought I had the address here. I just have the road. It's on Monterey Road in South Pasadena. That's okay. Charlie's we'll Coffee House. Share it. Yeah. Charlie's Coffee House, South Pasadena on August Yeah, it 6th. is uh, August 6th from one to four. I've got a table. Beautiful. It isn't, it isn't like I've got, I, I'll be doing my set. It's mostly uh, greet, meet and greet. Gotcha. And, and uh, so that's happening. Congratulations. Uh, that's great. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for being a storyteller. Thank you for not bearing the untold story inside of you, but instead sharing it and uh, making sure that it hits the page. Um, folks can find your book on amazon.com. I believe there's a paperback yes. version. Is there going to be a, um, are you, you're a voiceover artist. Have you done an audiobook of it yet? Or is that forthcoming? It, well, it's forthcoming like next year. Great. It's 626 pages. You're like, honey, I've got. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, but the answer is yes. Thank you so much for your time and energy and uh, just best of luck. I, I can sense this in, in, this, in the screen. You make Oha Hawaiians called Ohana Spirit. You, you send that through. It's like, Sarah, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I so appreciate you. Thank you for joining us for this conversation. The Collaborative Alchemy podcast is made possible with monthly micro donations from this community. If you like what you hear, please join us at patreon.com backslash Sarah Greenman.